Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Christopher Hurtado and Riley Risto. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We're by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Well, welcome back to another episode of Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Riley Risto. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Christopher, today we are going to be discussing something that is long overdue. We had a we had an episode back before you and I partnered up, and it was just Shiloh and I called On Peace, and that was episode number five. It was early on, and we wanted to kind of set the tone of what this podcast was going to be all about. And one of the things that we talk about is inner peace a lot, right? We talk about the contemplative life and obtaining that inner peace through meditative and contemplative practices. But today we're going to be talking about another aspect of peace, which is one of the missions of Latter-day Peace Studies, of which we are a corollary or auxiliary of, and and that is this, this idea of interpersonal peace or relational peace between peoples as either individuals or as groups or as you know civilizations or societies. The foundation for where we want to begin is section 98 of Doctrine and Covenants. Why start there, Riley? Well, because it it's pertinent, for one. I mean, it talks about peace and it talks about war. And what we want to discuss during this episode is how to do as this section of Scripture tells us to do, which is to renounce war. How do you do that functionally? And what are the implications? Obviously, you know, there's big philosophical debates back and forth about what would be the implications of renouncing war? And can you do that philosophically without doing it practically, you know, as some people might think you you can do? We're going to argue for a different position, which is actually just renouncing war. Doing what it says, like literally, you know, there's yeah. a lot of fundamentalists or literalists who, you know, would like to browbeat others for not taking the scriptures literally. Well, in this case, we're going to take it literally. And it says renounce war, so we're going to do that. And okay. we're going to do that from the philosophical perspective and kind of dive into that a little bit. But really, we want to focus on the practical side as well. Like, how do you practically do it? What does that look like? What does advocacy for peace mean in the absence of war? And so we're going to explore some popular proponents of those positions and kind of go down that road. So are we pacifists then? Is that is that what this is? That's kind of a popular way to speak about people who renounce war, right? But what is pacifism? At least in modern day parlance, most people look at pacifists as kind of like thin-skinned, weak, mealy-mouthed, limp type of people who don't have any backbone to them, right? Doesn't sound like us, Riley. No, I don't think so. And I don't think that's what effective promotion of peace looks like. Right. When Shiloh and I were in school together, well, let's see. No, that was after. I was in grad school. So Shiloh and this other friend and I, Jared Hensley is his name, we were making a documentary exploring the question, is hyperactive nonviolence realistic today? And the people we interviewed got the question, but the people we told about it who weren't the people we're interviewing, they always said, what does that mean? What is hyperactive nonviolence? And I would always say, it depends, right? What it means to you, it's something you have to figure out for yourself. What it means to us is, for example, making this documentary. But here's the thing. It's not pacifism, right? It's hyperactive, not just active. Passive, active, right? This is active, but it's not just active. It's hyperactive. We're going out of our way in the middle of a workday to sit down in front of the microphone and to proclaim peace, right? To renounce war and proclaim peace. This is one of the things that we do. By the way, we're not in Washington. We're not at the UN. What about that? And you could argue that those aren't even the best venues for promoting peace. I mean, they certainly haven't been successful in the past, right, in actually forging a world founded on peace. You know, as far as advocacy goes, it's it's great and all to have that big stage, that big forum, the bully pulpit, if you will, of the UN or or something like that. But Or even Washington. Yeah, or even Washington. It just hasn't been effective. Oh, not, like, not to say those who not have, to say that anybody's doing that in Washington in the government, right? But but some people believe that for us to have world peace or, you know, we have to win the election and then now you can make peace. I say no. This is something we do 
here at the grassroots level. And again, we're not talking about just inner peace. We're talking about that spreading outward, but it starts at the grassroots level right here. Sure. Yeah. So let's start by referencing back to section 98 in Doctrine and Covenants, this particular verse that talks about renouncing war. So it says here in verse 16 of 98, therefore renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children. I hear in that, Christopher, and tell me what you hear, but I hear this hyperactive idea you're talking about, proclaiming peace, seeking diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. What do you hear? I hear the same thing. It's not just renounce war, it's renounce war and proclaim peace and teach your children and, right? Right. So it's taking things to the next level of being proactive in the promotion of peace. I want to go back as well, just a few verses from that into verse 13. And maybe this isn't the best point in the episode to put this, but I want to throw it out there anyway, because I think this provides a viable alternative for war. And by viable, I mean, this is something that Christ advocated for. And so certainly we ought to see it that way. It says, and whoso layeth down his life in my cause, again, this is Christ, for my name's sake shall find it again, even life eternal. And so we're supposed to have a bigger vision, right, than just this life. We're supposed to see this promotion of peace as a superior goal to be aiming for rather than just the preservation of our own life. And of course, we have to figure out what is meant by losing our life for his sake. And that's in the context of the section, right? Because some people think when they go to war, they're doing it for the sake of God. Certainly, that was the case in the ancient Near East and the people who gave us the Old Testament. Even some of the people who rode, literally rode with the prophet Joseph Smith, and they rode out to a battle, and the battle never happened. You remember that one? The storm clouds come and behold the power of God, right? And the battle never happens. Yeah, it seems to me that the premise of that proposition rests on this idea that your life is the highest virtue you should pursue, like protection of life. So it's back to this like almost a basic natural law argument that your life is of superior importance to any other larger aims or goals. And in pursuit of the preservation of your life, anything goes, meaning killing other people, whatever it takes. As long as you preserve your own life, then you are justified. And so this section of scripture in 98 also speaks to justification. And so it's interesting that in the same section of scripture, you have this contrast of martyrdom with justified violence. So what does the justification of violence look for in look like in this section of scripture? You're familiar with it. We're distinguishing between being justified, which this section tells us how we can do that, and between being just, which it also tells us, and you just read it to us, it just doesn't spell that out. It spells out how we can be justified. It doesn't say, quote unquote, this is how you can be just but it does say sanctified, right? Yeah. So we have to distinguish then because as Hugh Nibley put it, if two peoples are at war, there are no good guys. We like to fall back on good guys and bad guys, mm-hmm. cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians. This is the, the duality mindset, right? But Hugh Nibley says, if it's come to war, then there's been some kind of breakdown on both sides. There's some kind of failure on both sides to live in a just way, in a moral way, right? This is, now one side could be justified, but again, section 98 tells us it's not as easy as you think. It's not just because you were born in America, therefore you're justified and you're the good guy or whatever, right? It's nothing like that. Because you brought up Hugh Nibley, Chris, I just want to go into this a little bit because here's a guy who actually served in a foreign conflict, and I guess he was in World War II, and had some experience in the military. And to hear his opinion of what that looked like, and you talked about these two sides of war really being the same side, he's got a great line or a great quote that speaks to this idea. Listen carefully here. He says, as I listen to our elders' quorums ringing out with militant hymns every Sunday morning, slashing their swords above the foe, conquering at every step, scattering the hosts of darkness, reveling in the victory of the right, one question keeps recurring to my mind. Where's the battle? The devil is using diversionary tactics to get us on the wrong battlefield. Satan's masterpiece of counterfeiting is the doctrine that there are only two choices, and he will show us what they are. We argue against this all the time. I'm going to interject here against this binary idea of, you know, 
purely good and evil, right and wrong, virtue and vice. That's something that was presented to us by the accuser, by Lucifer in the garden, right? But anyway, he's saying that Satan's masterpiece of counterfeiting is the doctrine of this binary, only two choices idea. And he will show us what they are, meaning Satan will show us what they are. It is true that there are only two ways, but by pointing us the way he wants us to take and then showing us a fork in that road, he convinces us that we are making the vital choice when actually we are choosing between branches in his road. Which one we take makes little difference to him, for both lead to destruction. This is the polarization we find in our world today. Thus we have the choice between Shiz and Coriantumr, which all Jaredites were obliged to make. We have the choice between the wicked Lamanites, and they were that, and the equally wicked, Mormon says even more wicked, Nephites, or between the flesh pots of Egypt and the stews of Babylon, or between the land pirates and the sea pirates of World War I, or between white supremacy, black supremacy, Vietnam and Cambodia, bushwhackers, jayhawkers, China, Russia, on and on and on and on and on. These actors in the play of war are both on the path of the accuser, of, of Satan. Yeah, you're reminding me of one of my personal heroes who is Malcolm X. Not for his black nationalism, that was a phase, right? But because I think the reason I admire Malcolm X so much is because he's someone who really acted on what he believed. He was this hyperactive guy, right? He, he came to understand later in his life, before his assassination, that black supremacy is just the other side of the coin of white supremacy that he was fighting against. And he became aware of not the brand of Islam that he learned from Elijah Muhammad, but the one that he learned on his trip to Mecca, on his hajj, on his pilgrimage, right? That it is a universal brotherhood. He had the experience, and by the way, he had had no experience of being around white people who didn't treat him as a second-class citizen because he was in the United States in the 1960s. When he went on hajj, he found that everybody, like in the LDS temple experience, everybody's wearing all white Everybody looks the same, except for the skin color, but that he never felt like he was being looked at any differently for being black than if he would be white. You know, he drank out of the same cup, as he says, from the white guy and shared the sleeping space and whatnot. So he has this, this idea of the brotherhood of all mankind that he gets from, from his Islam, from his Hajj. And this is the idea, right? This is that we're all brothers. We're all brothers and sisters, right? All children of the same God. One of the biggest lies then is that there's some other, right? And it's funny because we had the Book of Mormon story that gets duplicated in some sense. In the Book of Mormon, they say, we need to go over there and get them before they come over here and get us. And by the way, the real issue over there is the wicked traditions of their fathers. We said the same thing. We need to go over there. This was an argument for preemptive war. Even if you want to claim there's such a thing as just war, preemptive war is not it. So we've really overstepped the bounds, but we want to backpedal even more, right? Well, and speaking to your point, Chris, about trying to go even further back, section 98 says that this prescription for what some have called a Mormon just war theory was delivered even to Nephi himself. It says here in verse 32 of 98, behold, this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi and thy fathers Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. So this is going back all the way back into Old Testament Abrahamic times and all mine ancient prophets and apostles. So, I mean, depending on your viewpoint of that, if the, the standard view is that, you know, even Adam is the first prophet. So, I mean, this could be a law given all the way back to Adam for how to conduct a quote-unquote moral or moral war. And essentially, it comes down to this. Let me see what it says exactly here. Now I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently, and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. But if you bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. And again, if your enemy shall smite you the second time, and you revile not against your enemy, and bear it patiently, your reward shall be an hundredfold. And again, if he shall smite you the third time, and ye bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold. And these three testimonies shall stand against your enemy if he repent not and shall not be blotted out. And now verily I say unto you, if that enemy shall escape my vengeance, that he be not brought into judgment before me, then ye shall see to it that ye warn him in my name. So this is another warning, that he come no more upon you, neither upon your family, even your children's children under the third and fourth generation. A lot of preconditions are being established here. And then if thou wilt spare him, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness. So. 
after all of these slights and all these abuses, if you choose to spare him, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness. Again, we've talked about righteousness as being in right relationship to God and man. And also thy children and thy children's children under the third and fourth generation shall be rewarded. Here it is. Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands. And if thou rewardest him according to his works, thou art justified. If he has sought thy life and thy life is endangered by him, thine enemy is in thy hands and thou art justified. So if you really, 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 really want to go to war, you have to first abide by these preconditions. And if after all that, you still want to go to war against him or give him what he's deserved, I guess it's justified. Only after all that. And again, that's justified, not just. That's the distinction I'm trying to make, right? Because Jesus does tell us how to do it the just way. And the whole Book of Mormon, you know, if we can back up now to the Book of Mormon, the whole Book of Mormon, you know, I mean, it can be read in the same way. Now, it's not the way it's typically read. If you read it, you know, here's Mormon. He's a military guy. He likes military guys. He really likes Captain Moroni. He tells us if everybody would be like Captain Moroni, then the gates of hell would shake. I'm not trying to shake the gates of hell, though. I'm trying to shake the gates of heaven. Let me in, man. And and I know he wasn't saying Moroni would go to hell, but the gates of hell would shake. So we don't sing, I'm trying to be like Captain Moroni in primary. We sing, I'm trying to be like Jesus. And we can read the whole Book of Mormon as a story of how not to do it. And what's happening is we're reading it, be like Captain Moroni. And so what happens next? Well, now you storm the Capitol wearing a Halloween costume of a Roman centurion because it looks like Captain Moroni in Freiburg's painting and waving your bedsheet and calling it the title of liberty. And then you have a U.S. senator, sitting senator, Mike Lee, saying that Donald Trump is a modern Captain Moroni because Captain Moroni is the way to go, right? This is the reading. What's another way to read it? Well, it's a cautionary tale. And we've said this for a long time, that the Book of Mormon itself, and if you follow the story arc, this is not a prescription for how things work out in a good way in the end. This is a prescription for destruction. It's a cautionary tale. Mormon and Moroni, the very end of the Book of Mormon here, you've got Mormon essentially lamenting the destruction of his people. Why are they being destroyed? Because of their wickedness. In this thing, he says, while they're fighting a battle, tens of thousands of them being wiped out in a battle. And why? Because of this thing, the battle, the war. It's our bloodlust. That is always the thing from the very beginning. As soon as Nephi took those first few blows at you know Laban's neck or whatever, we started a story arc that began right there and continued all the way through to the end of the Book of Mormon and led to the complete destruction of a civilization. That's a story arc. Now, Riley, I can look up war on the church website, and it tells me and cites Captain Moroni as an example that I can go to war. Why would I listen to you and not listen to the church website? Yeah, listen to the Book of Mormon. Don't appeal to me as an authority. I, I have no idea. Yeah, so that's the thing, right? If I listen to the Book of Mormon, I can come away with the Captain Moroni lesson. If I listen to the Bible I can, or the Old Testament, I can come away with another understanding, right? Of the ancient Near Eastern warrior, tribal warrior God. Yahweh is a tribal warrior God of the Israelites, and he's going to fight my battles for me. Uh, or, you know, he's going to be with me. It's, it's like we've said before on this podcast, if you read the Iliad, if somebody, a human being throws a sphere, if it hits its mark, it's because the God who's on the side of the spear thrower is greater than the God that's on the side of the mark. It's not about the people. It's about the gods are actually the ones having it out. And that's the ancient Near Eastern mindset. And God is saying, I'm not your warrior God, but let's stay in conversation. Let's keep this conversation going until you understand who I am. And so now comes the incarnation of God, and he teaches us. And of course, in our modern scripture and the Doctrine and Covenants, we have, you know, again, the same Jesus giving this revelation, saying, renounce war, proclaim peace, saying, if you want to be justified, you got to go through a lot more steps than you thought you did, way more than anybody told you. And ultimately, you can be just and just, you know, nevertheless, it would be better if you didn't do it. We're not really paying attention to the whole message, right? People read the one verse that says whatever they think is violent or bellicose, right? And then they don't read the next verse that says, nevertheless, God is merciful, and it would be better if he didn't. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is I think if we take literally these words from the scriptures and say, okay, well, this is God saying this to people, 
Even with that, there's still a way to reconcile that to the idea that God ultimately wants for us to be peaceful with each other. And that is that God tends to relate to us in ways that we can understand. And by our very nature, we are a warlike people. We are a people who just crave war. We crave contention. And we're so quick to anger and seek revenge that sometimes the only way that you can relate to a people that are in that mode of thought is by speaking their language. And so frequently in scripture, you have God speaking to man in this vernacular of conflict and war. You know, we have this example even in the New Testament with the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, saying that he came not to bring peace, but bring a sword. And of course, we've literalized that, you know. What sword did Jesus bring right out of Mary's womb? There was none, right? But how do we read that for what it was meant to be? There we read literally and we mistake, right? Because we have lost track of the meaning of symbols, right? We've lost track of the meaning of symbols. The sword is a symbol that represents discernment. When you cut with the sword, you're dividing in two, right? Over here, what is just. Over here, what is unjust. This is one of the symbols of the archetypal king whose job it is to pass judgment. It's also his job to, you know, to fight the battles, right? To go out in front of the army. But it is his job to judge. And so his sword has both options, right? And so there's not only one way to read that, at least. And I think in context, in this case, it would be misreading it to say that Jesus wants you to bring an actual sword. There's another sword. I'm calling these the sword verses. There's an infamous sword verse in the Quran, which is also probably misread. Let's now read the sword verses in our tradition. You've mentioned one. What's the other one? Well, the other one is the apostles are in fear of their lives. This is towards the end of Jesus's life. And they say, Master, should we go procure some swords? And he essentially says, well, how many do you have? And he says, we, they, they said, we have two. And he says, that's enough. And of course, two is not enough to you know defend however many disciples are following Christ. Unless you're not going to do anything with them. Unless you're not doing anything, right? Unless you're just renouncing the conflict and, and laying them down. He's saying, essentially, it doesn't really matter. Bring one sword, two swords, like it doesn't matter because we're not going to fight. We don't do that. That's just my interpretation, but I think it's an easy one to make. And we see Jesus when one of his disciples does take out a sword and cut off the ear of a Roman soldier, a centurion. What does he do? He says, no, 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 put that away. And he heals the Roman centurion. So how do we read the Book of Mormon, you know, where we don't think that we should do like Captain Moroni? And what do the anti-Nephi-Lehi's do? And what do they say? Well, it seems to me the anti-Nephi-Lehi's take the tack of advice that was given to them by Jesus in, in laying down their lives rather than you know pursuing a war. And this is after they recognized, as you pointed out earlier, that they were a warlike people. By the way, there's a conference talk from President Spencer W. Kimball that says, we are a warlike people. He said that about us. So the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, they decide to lay down their lives. They say, we're not going to, we realize we're warlike people. We're not going to do this anymore. We're going to lay down our lives. And this is the lowest body count battle in the entire Book of Mormon. This is why I say battle. I think this is important. It speaks to the hyperactivity of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They're not pacifists. They didn't wait in their homes for the enemy to come all the way to their door and even inside. And this would put their families at risk. They protected their families by going out to the battlefield and facing off with the enemy. That's why I'm calling it a battle. Maybe it's not really okay. a battle, but you get my point. No, it's a battle of will. Yeah. They face off with the enemy, and what do they do? They kneel down and offer up their lives. They martyr themselves. You mentioned martyrdom from section 98. In Arabic, there's no difference between the verb to testify and to be a martyr. It's the same thing. How you become a martyr is you seal your testimony with your death. And by the way, we talk about nonviolence all the time. There's a non in front of that. Why do we need a non? What's the word? Is it peace? It's not, right? Peace, war, violence, nonviolence. Where's the action? Why do we have to stick a non in front of it? Asking the question why there isn't a specific word for nonviolence that doesn't just require negating violence with a non prefix. Yeah. That, that's an interesting question. It's just not even in our vocabulary. That's a good point. Yeah. Maybe we should get together, you know, with our team, Riley, Latter day Peace Studies team, and coin a term. And that could be what we're doing to advance peace. If we could just coin the term, we don't even have a word for it. If you have a word, put it in the comments. Yeah, yeah. Hit us up on Latter-day Peace Studies on Facebook, or if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever, leave us a comment and 
Tell us what word, a made-up word that you've come up with, means the opposite of violence. There's power in words. We create things in words before we create them in some physical reality, some other manifestation beyond words, right? The first creation. It's usually in our minds, but if we have to express it, we have two options. We can either talk about it or we can show it. And to show it, you have to actually make a material creation. We usually talk about it first or we write about it or we draw it. Well, that's interesting because, you know, the word can also just be represented by a person. Christ is sometimes spoken of symbolically as being the logos. And uh, of course, there's the spoken word that creates the universe, but language can take many forms. I just want to go back real quick and talk about your, your Malcolm X ideas. You know, when he came back from Mecca, and fully embraced this idea of brotherhood of man and was ready to kind of be a proactive, even hyperactive advocate for brotherhood and peace, what happens to him? Of course, he gets killed. Listen, nobody wants to hear from somebody who wants to promote peace. It happened to Malcolm X. It happened to Martin Luther King Jr. It happened to Gandhi. When Shiloh and Jared and I got together to talk about making this documentary, we said this was spoken. It was not in jest. We were dead serious. We said, it's a good thing. We looked at around the room and we thought about who we were. And we said, it's a good thing that our spouses are all strongly independent women, because if we make this documentary, we may die. These messages are not welcome. Right. Just simply promoting the idea of peace actively puts your life in danger. People don't like to hear about peace generally. They think they do. It always feels good and they get the little goosebumpies. It's threatening. But it threatens the foundation of a lot of their way of life. Well, you might have to die. Of course. And again, this comes back to preservation of life being kind of like the supreme virtue for so many people. Instead of having that moral foundation that there are higher things than your own life. It still is interesting to me. You've got Malcolm X. You've got Martin Luther King. You've got Gandhi. All these people that we hold up as kind of these archetypal advocates for peace and something we should all aspire to become. And yet we know deep down that becoming that person puts your life at risk. And so no one actually wants to do it. We want to have our idol, but we don't actually want to do anything about it. For those who don't know Malcolm X's story well, and I think, you know, if you go to public school, Malcolm X is branded as violent. MLK is nonviolent. Malcolm X has a career as a criminal before he becomes a convert and becomes the Malcolm X that we're talking about, the public figure. That's obviously violent. But after this, there is no violence. They love to show the picture of him in the window with the AR-15 or whatever it was, his enemies, the people that were out to get him, right? Because he was now not on board any longer with the Nation of Islam's ideas of black nationalism. He saw a brotherhood of mankind and they were not okay with this. And they were throwing Molotov cocktails through his children's bedroom windows. And so now you see him doing what he can think to do to protect his family. He's standing by the window, holding the rifle, peeking out the curtains. That's the picture that we get, right? That's not a picture that, that's a summary of who and what Malcolm X was. The picture of this, the summary of who and what Malcolm X was is the man who died, like Jesus died, like MLK died, like Gandhi died, at the hands of those who sought to silence him because he was speaking of peace. Normally, the place where he spoke, they had security, they had frisked people. He said, I don't want anybody frisking anybody. He already knew he was a dead man walking, and he did not let them stop him from continuing to proclaim peace. He didn't want to search anybody, and he wanted everybody to come and, and hear the message. And somebody else spoke louder. With a loud bang, he was shot dead. There's a, a correlate to this story, you know, a couple decades later. A lesser known but really stringent activist for peace was Bob Marley. And, you know, he was playing a concert and someone tried to silence him by shooting him as well. He actually took the shot, continued the concert, having been shot. He continued the concert because his message he always felt was more important than his body, than his safety. I just really look up to people who put those ideals above their own preservation. That's what makes them laudable, you know. What do we say to someone who would argue the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, their way of life is not sustainable, right? You need somebody to go and fight, and their sons did it for them. By the way, that makes it sound like they asked their sons to do this, right? Yeah, I, I think the better example is to look at what the parents were doing, and they were obviously trying to teach their children as well. Some people have said, well, 
They were a wicked people who recognized their sin, took a very specific covenant with God, buried their weapons of war and swore to never take them up again. And they tried to isolate this as a very limited in scope covenant that the, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's made. And I think that's just a terrible reading. Uh, to me, where this is located almost kind of centrally in the Book of Mormon, to me, if you look at the Book of Mormon almost as a, a chiasm where you have death at the beginning and death at the end, in the middle, you have this renewal of life because of their sacrifice. It's it's almost as if it's giving us this central message of atonement or atonement through peace and through nonviolence. And so I think it it's a big mistake to isolate these martyrs and their message and say, well, they did it for themselves. And it was a kind of selfish reasons rather than the end result being seen for what it is, which again, as you mentioned, the lowest casualty conflict of any that's outlined in the Book of Mormon, I think a thousand people were hewn down. And as a result, many more were converted because of their their sympathy for the cause of, of what they were promoting at that moment. It was clearly more effective. It was clearly more selfless. And it was their testimony. And we shouldn't degrade that by saying it was this limited in scope covenant that they made to atone for their past sins. I, I think that's a, a poor reading. Picking up with what you said there, you know, the, the testimony is what they had in English language terms that caused them to now thinking of the Arabic as an, as an example where there's not a distinction between giving up your life and testifying. And so what do they do? Because they have this testimony, therefore they lay down their lives. And much has been made of the testimony of their children. Their children uh, said, in the book we read, that their mothers knew it. It doesn't say they knew it. It says that their mothers knew it. Is this perhaps a borrowed testimony? Do they have their own testimony? They don't have the testimony of their fathers. And the testimony that, that, that we read about is a borrowed testimony of their mothers. Well, it's interesting. I, I wonder... I don't know if the story specifies this, but is it only the men that go out on this field and commit themselves to martyrdom? I mean, that would make sense because they were the ones that buried their weapons of war. And perhaps there was some misunderstanding or there was a conflict there between spouses in terms of what their mothers thought they should do and what the fathers knew they had to do or, or chose to do. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting thought process to go through to think about maybe the sons of Helaman went out on borrowed testimony from their mothers that were basically in spite of the testimony of their fathers. I, I don't know. It's possible. If your son's testimony doesn't match up with yours, don't be surprised, right? This is not something new. I hope, you know, that for the listener that, that you get the chance at least to hear us to talk about this and to think about other ways of reading it. And by the way, it's not just about interpreting what happened in that one case, right, in that one scenario, but the overall reading of the book, the message, the overall message that the book is putting forward, maybe even despite the redactor, despite Mormon as a redactor, right, as a military man who is a big fan of Moroni and names his son after him, even despite that, if you look at what the book is telling you, it's not necessarily what you're getting from your co-religionists. Well, and I admire the honesty of, of Mormon, even though he named his son Moroni, the honesty of him lamenting the downfall of tens of thousands of his people because of their unrighteousness and bloodlust and, and, you know, their desire to, to fight and kill and die. You know, he could very easily have said it was your licentiousness or your, you know, your deviancy that led to this. He specifies that while they're fighting, he says, in this thing, thou art unrighteous. He's saying that, you know, in the moment that you're being slain, it's because you chose this thing. I mean, it's ironic because he put out the epistle to the Lamanite king, essentially saying, hey, we want to meet at this specific battle place by the Hill Cumorah. And, you know, he's the one that sent him that letter. So take it for what it's worth. But back to your point, this, this story arc does not turn out well for the Nephites. If this is a chronicle of the Nephites and their decisions and their and the outcomes of their decisions, it's pretty easy to draw the conclusion that violence and war was their great sin that led to their downfall. To see any other conclusion, I don't I don't know how you do that. Yeah, their violence and war did nothing but beget more violence and war, death and destruction, and ultimately lamentation. If you haven't heard this reading, right? If you haven't seen it or heard it and you have heard 
the kinds of things that our co-religionists say that would make you dress up like a Roman centurion and storm the capital and call yourself Captain Moroni, I get it. If you have heard this, or if you've seen it, it's so clearly the opposite message from that. Speaking of that message, I'm going to read for you a few verses from Mormon chapter 6, which is the Lamentation of of Mormon, and paying particular attention to verse 17 and, and 19. This is after watching tens of thousands of his people get butchered in the plains by the Lamanites. And my soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people, and I cried, O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, you are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, he's calling everyone out here, how is it that ye could have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. It just causes me to wonder what he's referring to. What are the ways of Jesus that these people rejected? And he says this thing, you know, in this thing. I can't help but think he's speaking presently because he's feeling that pain presently as he watches this massacre unfold. He's like, how could we have done this? It's terrible. And it it all came down to a rejection of the message of Jesus. What message did the early Christians come away with in hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ? It was so clear to them what gospel Jesus was preaching, this gospel of peace, I mean, it could not be misconstrued. Certainly, they were called upon to take up their crosses and follow him. If that's not an invitation to martyrdom, someone else explain to me what that means. It's clearly an invitation to follow the way of peace, of nonviolence. If that entails martyrdom, then so be it. In fact, all of the apostles followed Christ into that path of martyrdom. Yeah, they're subject to Rome. Rome has a project they call the Pax Romana, which is Roman peace. And the idea of this peace, as they call it, as John Dominic Crossan, the preeminent historical Jesus scholar put it, is their project is peace through victory. Jesus's project is peace through justice. As Preston Sprinkle put it in his book, Fight a Christian Case for Nonviolence, He wins by dying. This is not the Roman idea, right? You you win by killing, not by dying, but not Jesus. He wins by dying, and he tells us to follow him. His followers into the first few centuries following his death took up that cause. In particular, you've got this, who some refer to as the patron saint of martyrs, is this Maximilian of Tibesa. I encourage you to go on the internet and read his, his account or the account of his martyrdom. But I wanted to just to point out a couple of his quotes that illustrate this point of seeing higher ideals than just the preservation of, of his own life. He was approached by this Roman soldier named Dion to essentially join the Roman military at a compulsory age. I don't, I don't remember what it was. It's in the story. I think it's 17. And he refused to do it. And he cited the fact that he's a Christian specifically as his reason for not serving in the military. Over and over and over, this Roman soldier named Dion is trying to convince him. He's like, look, the penalty for this is death. You know, who's put these ideas in your head? You you either serve or you die. I, I can't believe you would just acquiesce to your own death so easily. And he appeals to Maximilian's father, Victor, Fabius Victor. He says, put your son right. Victor says he knows what he believes and he will not change. Over and over, he tries to convince him. He just won't do it. He says, I carry the mark of Christ, my God, already. I shall send you to your Christ at once, Dion says. Maximilian, I ask nothing better. Do it quickly, for there is my glory. Dion, give him his badge to the recruiting officer. (laughs) Maximilian, I will not take the badge. If you insist, I will deface it. I am a Christian, and I am not allowed to wear that leaden seal around my neck. For I already carry the sacred sign of the Christ, the Son of the living God, whom you know not, the Christ who suffered for our salvation, whom God gave to die for our sins. It is he whom all we Christians serve. It is he whom we follow, for he is the Lord of life, the author of our salvation. Dion, join the service and accept the seal or else you will perish miserably. Maximilian, and this is key, I shall not perish. My name is even now before God. I refuse to serve. He goes on, I shall not die. 
If I go from this earth, my soul will live with Christ my Lord. And that's the key. The earliest Christians had a bigger picture about the purpose of their life here on earth. And if it meant giving up their life for the higher ideal or the higher way of following Christ, they were more than willing. And this is just one example. You know, he's the patron saint of martyrs, but Christian and martyr were kind of synonymous there for a while. They were required, you know, the Roman government required all Roman citizens to fight. They also required you to pay homage to their gods, right? And the early Christians saw these as false gods. And there are two senses of false gods. One is that God doesn't exist. The other is that's not the real God. They meant the latter. So in other words, when they were being asked to give a token, you know, you're either with us or you're against us was the Roman way. And they were supposed to make a token sacrifice on the altar to the Roman gods, and they wouldn't do it. They thought, how can I sacrifice to a false god? Not meaning non-existent, but meaning this is a demon right in front of the real God. I can't do it. They would die. That was their loyalty to God and his teachings. And you look at modern examples, you know, this is great for illustrating what the earliest Christians believed about violence. But you go to modern examples and you find someone like Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was a general. I mean, he served in all levels of the military and oversaw huge conflicts, including in World War II, massive death and destruction. And he came away with it, not with this view of, of soldiers and war and conflict as being some kind of heroic endeavor, but he saw the cost and he actually counted the cost. And I pulled this short quote from Connor Boyack's website, Connor's Conundrums. Connor is a another peace advocate in the LDS community, someone who's spoken out frequently against war. And actually, for a while, he, he rented a billboard in Utah County promoting that talk you, you mentioned earlier by Spencer Kimball called We Are a Warlike People, and kind of admonishing people about their support for violence and, and war and conflict. But anyway, this is a quote from Dwight D. Eisenhower from this blog post on renouncing war. Eisenhower said, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. I'm going to interject here because Chris, when I hear that language, the first thing I think about is Jesus telling his disciples, inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these, ye have done it unto me. And the apostles or disciples respond like, hey, when did we do this to you? And he's like, if you came across someone who was naked and you clothed him, you know, or, or hungry and you fed him, if you've done it to these, you've done it unto me. And I think about this the same way. When we are engaging in these massive international wars and building up these massive militaries, we're robbing the hungry and the needy, the homeless, children, the vulnerable. Those are the people that are suffering the most from this military industrial complex that Eisenhower himself kind of coined the phrase, I think. Continuing on, the cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. That's one bomber. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is, I repeat, the best way of life to be found on the road the world has been taking. This is not a way of life at all, in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. And I love that imagery. Essentially, it's a barbaric substitute for the cross of wood that Christ hung on. It's a cross of iron. It's that representation of the military-industrial complex. What you were saying. Eisenhower said about the cost of war is one way to count the cost, right? In terms of the exchange value of what it costs to build these things. But there are other costs. There's something that the church put out about building MX missile silos or sites in Utah that addresses those other costs. Yeah. Back in 81, the church put out a statement regarding, I guess the, the federal government wanted to build an MX missile you know, manufacturing site in Utah and Nevada. They were getting a lot of inquiries about their thoughts on this because at least back then, you know, that was very much the core of the church was in the Intermountain West. And so they were a big player in that geographic area. Their response says, we have received many inquiries regarding our feelings on the proposed basing of the MX missile system in Utah, Nevada, after assessing in great detail information recently available. And after the most careful and prayerful consideration, we make the following statement. 
aware of the response our words are likely to evoke from both proponents and opponents of the system. First, by way of general observation, I think this is the most important part parenthetically here. We repeat our warnings against the terrifying arms race in which the nations of the earth are presently engaged. We deplore in particular the building of vast arsenals of nuclear weaponry. We are advised that there is already enough such weaponry to destroy in large measure our civilization with consequent suffering and misery of incalculable extent. Secondly, with reference to the presently proposed MX basing in Utah, Nevada, we are told that if it goes forward as planned, it will involve the construction of thousands of miles of heavy-duty roads with the buildings of some 4,600 shelters in which will be hidden some 200 missiles, each armed with 10 warheads. Each one of these 10 nuclear warheads will have far greater destructive potential than did the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so then they get into some geopolitical treaty negotiations and whatever. But essentially what they're saying here is that this is a continuation of a failed viewpoint of what it means to be Christian. In in no way does this represent a Christian viewpoint. And somehow we've gone from that being against the MX missile development in Utah to our present day. What does it say in, in the website now about serving in military and war and all that stuff on the website, Chris? Just like in a paraphrase, right? That while we give lip service to Jesus's teachings about nonviolence, right? That are, I think, clear, that it would still be okay. And Captain Moroni has said as an example, if you would uh, fight, but only because you're preserving your life, right? This is the, again the question you keep raising of what is the higher value. For the church, at least at this time in 1981, they were okay with, you know, not necessarily kowtowing to this military mindset that seems to have overtaken us. And maybe it's been since the George Bush years and, you know, response to 9 11. I have no idea when it began, but it seems like we've had a, a sea change in the way that we treat conflict and war and military service and all that stuff compared to 1981 or in the J. Reuben Clark era. But at the very end of this statement on the MX missile, this is kind of the meta statement. It says, our fathers came to this Western area to establish a base from which to carry the gospel of peace to the peoples of the earth. It is ironic and a denial of the very essence of that gospel that in this same general area, there should be constructed a mammoth weapons system potentially capable of destroying much of civilization. It's clear that it's not the church's arsenal. It's the government's, but we don't want it here. We're Christian. Well, and, and what they're doing, I, I think, is great here. They're pointing out the irony. This is the place from which you know the gospel was supposed to roll forth, and yet we're establishing here this place where we can essentially destroy much of civilization. It continues on with the most serious concern over the pressing moral question of possible nuclear conflict. We plead with our national leaders to marshal the genius of the nation to find viable alternatives which will secure at an earlier date and with fewer hazards the protection from possible enemy aggression, which is our common concern. There's still somewhat of an accommodation made there to this whole preservation, you know, and I, I get it. It's a church that essentially is is looking after its people. But I think that last phrase somewhat accommodates the idea that it belongs anywhere, and it really doesn't. If we're going to pursue peace, there's just got to be a different narrative altogether. Utah's record isn't better all the way around, but it is nice. It's comforting to me. And I like to, every time I leave Utah by, what is it, Interstate 80 that goes west out of Salt Lake City on my way to Reno, Nevada, and on to California. As you leave Salt Lake City, you'll see past the airport on your left, there's this huge smokestack where we're burning our chemical weapons. Not all of them, but at least some of them. It's a good start. I didn't know that's what was taking place there. I know which one you're talking about. Interesting. Those uh, government treaties and whatnot, I studied those for my master's. That's how I know. It's not like it's advertised. You know, there's no sign that tells you that's what we're doing here, but that's what they're doing there. My closing thought would be that there's so many ways that we can be involved in the movement for relational peace. And maybe it starts with inner peace, just coming to peace with ourselves and, and you know, of course. Seeing the divinity in other people. I mean, maybe that's the beginning and that's great. That's the beginning. And then taking it to that, yeah. So then taking it to that next step might essentially just look like, hey, how would we treat our brothers? You know, how do we treat our sisters? And this comes back to the great commandments. And really, Christ's gospel is in its fullest expression. It's those great commandments. How do we act upon that? And there's so many ways to do that. There's as many ways to do that as there are saints. And so, I would just implore all of us, myself included, to just work towards peace in small ways 
and at the grassroots level and let that coalesce together until it builds itself into a movement. Yeah, it happens here first, right? Be the change you want to see in the world. I'm starting with the man in the mirror, right? You don't need to go to Washington or to the UN to promote world peace. You can do it right here, right now, right where you are. We talked about leaving a challenge for our listener or leaving an assignment for our listener. This is the professor in us, I guess, when we were talking about this earlier. But there's an article written by Mark Twain that was, I believe, released only after his death. This was his final wish, is that it be released after his death. And it's called The War Prayer. I think we've mentioned it on prior episodes. But if you haven't had the chance to read The War Prayer and you want one of the best descriptions of of what war is and does to people, look up Mark Twain's The War Prayer and give that a read. It's a pretty awesome explanation of what war does to people. It's an experience to actually read through it. We could have read through it. It's long. It's not too long to read yourself, but it's maybe a little bit long to read on a podcast. And I don't know about copyright, but go through that experience. And here's another experience. The impact that this experience may create for you may not, you know, your mileage may vary from mine. And that's because I'm telling you about it. Nobody told me. What Jared Hensley did for me is he said, sit down, I want to show you something. Now, you're going to find out what I saw before you experience it for yourself, but you can still try to recreate that experience for yourself and definitely for others. So he played for me a video on YouTube. I don't know exactly how to find it. You know, I would search patriotic Ronald Reagan speech. And there's this speech that Ronald Reagan gave that hits all the points of, you know, freedom. And and it does deal with, you know, our military and things like this. There's a flag waving in the background and the, the music, whatever. I can't remember if there's music, but it's this very patriotic, quote unquote, patriotic speech. And you listen to it as American, you might think, yeah, you know, I, that, you, you might feel it. And, and there is music, actually. So there's the music playing and there's the emotion of the words, the way they're delivered by President Reagan and all of that. And when it ended, at the end of that speech, he immediately played Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount from the LDS Church. He didn't say anything. He just says, sit down, let me play you this video. And then when that one ended, he played the next one. Even though I've told you, you can already begin to imagine what that's like. It wasn't the surprise for you that it was for me, but you should still do it. Watch the two videos back to back and show your children. I mean, if you can find that, send it to me, Chris. I, I'd like to check that out. That's interesting. We hope this episode has done something for you to spur you on, to motivate you to get involved in some small way in the work of relational peace between individuals, between communities and nations. This is maybe the highest expression of what Jesus wanted for us is to be at peace one with another, with our brothers and sisters, and and to find space for love instead of conflict. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Riley Ristel. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thank you to our editors and those who make our presence known on social media. The quote images that get shared, that helps to get the message out. And these aren't, you know, they're not quoting us. I think I was quoted once, but, you know, we're quoting Gandhi, we're quoting the prophets, we're quoting the scriptures, we're quoting other sacred texts that promote the message of peace. Please like and share, comment, join us Sunday morning for Come Follow Me study group. There's an invitation posted on the Facebook group every week right before it starts, which is 8 to 9 Pacific. Riley, what's that page? Latter-day Peace Studies. See you next week.